Since Beto O'Rourke is now running for president, we wanted to drop this episode again. Although he did not win the Senate race, he did increase turnout in Texas and showed us the way to a campaign with integrity. He's still the same candidate who's committed to rebuilding democracy from the ground up. He does not take any PAC money and is powered only by human beings, and he's still committed to representing all of us. Check it out. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What happens in a society when people are heard? What is the power of talking and listening to people? And does an engaged discussion lead to action? We might get first-rate answers to those questions from our guest today on Future Hindsight, Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke, U.S. Representative for El Paso, Texas. He was elected in November 2012 and currently serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. Prior to being congressman, he served two terms on the El Paso City Council. Born and raised in El Paso, he has been deeply involved in civic, business, and community efforts in his hometown. He is now running for U.S. Senate. Thank you for talking to us. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be with you. The presidential election of 2016 turned out to be a pivotal moment in your life. What happened that day? It's interesting. The, the context is the city in which I was raised, that I'm now raising my children with my wife, Amy, and that I have the good fortune to represent in the United States Congress, El Paso, Texas, um, a city of immigrants, a quarter of those that I represent in Congress born in another country, a binational community connected literally physically uh, with Ciudad Juarez, forming the largest binational community in the hemisphere, maybe the world. Facing a person who had just been elected to the highest office in the land, promising to build a wall to separate our communities, our countries, though we're not at war, that we have record levels of safety and security. And though I would argue our greatest strength is that we are a community, a state, a country of immigrants, of refugees, of asylum seekers the world over, the very foundation of what it is to be America, um, that, that this was all being called into question um, and that we had to anticipate the question, not just that our kids were going to ask us the next morning, you know, after this election, what happened, who won, what's going on, but the question we were sure to be asked down the road about what we did at this moment that everything that we cared about was on the line and not just the wall, not just our relationship with Mexico and not just how we treat and welcome immigrants, but the idea that we would ban all Muslims or that we would call the press the enemy of the people or that we would undermine and maybe destroy uh, any remaining modicum of decency or dignity or civility in, in public life beyond our ability to articulate it, something was really going wrong in, in this country. And and out of that came this response from my wife, Amy, and and me about what we could do. And, and we didn't know what that was. We just really uh, just got after it, hit the road, started listening to and meeting our fellow Texans. Um, that was the impetus for this run for the United States Senate that I'm on, but it has become so much bigger than that. And I think it is a very common story for people, certainly in Texas, maybe around the country, 
the events of that election became a galvanizing force in their lives. But it didn't just end with the reaction to that election. It began something that's now about the big things that people want to do, the aspirational goals that they have for them and their families. And it's turned into this very positive amazing moment, at least in Texas. And that's what I'm finding all across the state. But that's that's where it started that night in November of 2016. You were just talking about going and meeting people and listening to them. And I know that as part of your campaign, you intend to visit every single one of the counties in Texas. And according to your website, last I checked, you have visited 237 out of 254 counties, meeting with people all over the state and all types of events from beers with Beto, which I'm told is very fun, uh, to early morning runs and chatting in bakeries, not to mention holding 212 town hall meetings. You want to make sure that everyone is heard and you speak to everyone, no matter what their political affiliation may be. You even go to counties that have voted 98% Republican, whose constituents are not likely to vote for you. And you also go to college campuses, a demographic that is notorious for being non-voters. Why are you doing this? Why is this important to you? You know, it. Th this is not very sophisticated, but it, it just feels right. Um, th this is the way in which I want to campaign and um, meet and listen to and work with the people that I want to serve and represent in the United States Senate. I want to be with and work with and work for everyone. And you can't be too Republican or too Democrat or too rural or too big city for me to want to come out and meet you and be with you and learn what's on your mind and listen to you and learn something from that and take it with me and make sure that it becomes part of this campaign and, and how I want to serve you, your family, your community in the United States Senate. And, and that approach, as, as unsophisticated as it is, has, has been the most inspiring, um, the most honest, the most direct way I can think of to, to run a campaign. Because there have been so many people in the places that you might otherwise write off, these heavily Republican counties, these rural red parts of the state, who have helped me to learn so much. And not just as a candidate, but I, I feel like I've come away a much better, much stronger person and certainly in the Senate uh, will be much more effective on delivering to their expectations and ensuring that their hopes, um, their ambitions are incorporated in our service and, and what we what we deliver. Likewise, going to parts of Texas that have been taken for granted, cities like El Paso, where I'm from, that are so reliably democratic and so hard to get to physically, just geographically, so separated from the rest of the state. No one ever shows up or takes the time to listen to what's on the mind of those people in those parts of the state. That's precisely where we're going as well to make sure that everyone can be a part of this and not asking people to turn out, uh, asking people to tell me their story and to tell me what they're excited about and to bring that into this campaign. So 254 counties total, and we've almost visited every single one of them, and we will visit every single one of them before this is over, and many of them many times over. And I think that's the way, along with not taking any PAC money, uh, no corporate help, no special interest contributions, that's the way not just to run a campaign, not just to win this race, but I would argue to get our democracy back and to make sure that elected government is responsive to people, to human beings, um, to, to their interests and concerns, and not those of 
corporations and special interests and this concentration of wealth and power and privilege that is really unprecedented in this country that, that's calling the shots and the tune right now in our country. We, we, we can be the response to that. Yeah, I like the fact that you don't take any PAC money and that you have primarily raised money from small donations. And that sounds totally unintuitive that with the strategy you have outraised your opponent in the last few quarters and raised $6.7 million in the first quarter of this year. How were you able to achieve that, you think? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is not what you would expect at the outset of this race. An underdog challenger who has forsworn any PAC money and, and not good PAC, bad PAC, just no PAC money at all, only going to take contributions from human beings. Those contributions are going to be low dollar amounts, primarily 10, 15, 25 bucks. And to outraise the incumbent, and not just once, but four times out of five reporting periods, who does take PAC money, who has run for president, has a national fundraising base from which to draw, that I think shows you the power of people. It has nothing to do, I think, with the candidate or the party or maybe even this campaign. It's just people wanting to make sure that it is people who are calling the shots. It is people who are driving the issue and the agenda. And it is people who will be served once we are in the Senate. In the last quarter alone, beyond raising $6.7 million to Ted Cruz's $2.7 million, we raised it from 141,000 unique contributions. So it's a lot of people, primarily from Texas, coming together and making something otherwise thought to be impossible, uh, making that happen and, and doing it because it's the right thing to do for Texas and it's it's the right thing to do for the country. You really are rebuilding democracy from the ground up, certainly in the state of Texas. I have a bigger question about PAC and big money. How do you think big money corrodes our democracy? I'll give you an example. When, when I was first sworn in to serve my community in Congress in 2013, I asked to be on the House Veterans Affairs Committee. It came as a big surprise to my colleagues who wondered why I didn't want to be on a committee like Energy and Commerce or Ways and Means because not that they didn't think that veterans were important, but they understood that there are no corporations or special interests or political action committees who have business before the House Veterans Affairs Committees. Uh, essentially, they were concerned about my ability to raise campaign donations that would allow me to effectively fund my reelection. That is how twisted and upside down our priorities have become in Congress. The, the objective for so many of my colleagues, and it doesn't make them bad people, it's just the way the place works, is to be on those committees of jurisdiction that write health care policy or energy policy or policy that affects those telecom companies because those same interests will pay through campaign contributions to have access to those members of Congress and sometimes pay for, I would argue, the outcomes of the legislation in question. When you wonder why the legislation that comes out of Congress is so at odds with the people that it purports to serve, our constituents, it is because you have the interference of those special interests, those PACs, those corporations who are 
literally writing the legislation after purchasing the access. And, and I'll, I'll say this on, on behalf of my colleagues. They were elected into a system that already worked this way, that was a form of institutionalized legal corruption that, that's pay to play. And it's the only way that they feel they can get reelected to be able to deliver on those things that they ran for Congress in the first place to do for their constituents. As someone like Lawrence Lessig has put it, that PAC money that won't corrupt you, it won't sway you on issues one through 10 that you ran on, that you believe in, that are your core convictions, but you'll vote on 1,200 issues in a given session of Congress. So issues 11 through 1,200, well, listen, those weren't your priority. You may not be the subject matter expert in them. What what skin is it off your back to, if, if you don't know much about the issue anyhow, to, to make someone happy who's going to be able to fund your reelection going forward? It's that perverse little decision in the aggregate 535 times over from all the members of Congress that builds the dysfunction and the disconnect between Congress and the people that that institution purports to serve. So you can write all the great legislation in the world to get big money out of politics. And I wrote the No PAC Act with my colleague Rokana, but that's probably not going to pass because it would undermine my colleagues' ability to, to fund their reelection. The way to do this is to win a big race like Texas and to win it the right way and to win it without PAC money and to show people that there's a path to win or to stay in office or to challenge an entrenched incumbent based on the power of people. And so I think that's the way that we get our democracy back. So what can everyday citizens do about this, given that you just said it's unlikely to pass? Beyond joining a campaign like ours that is run without any PAC support in helping to show the country that there's a way and, and Texas can lead the way to do this the right way to return democracy back to people. I say run for office uh, or get behind that classmate or colleague or family member or, or friend who's willing to run for office. In Texas, for the first time in 25, 26 years, every single one of the 36 congressional districts is either being challenged by a Democrat or there's a Democratic incumbent who's running for re-election. All of these people who have gotten off the sidelines, gotten into the game, made this incredibly difficult decision to enter the arena, they are bringing with them their family members, their friends, the people in their lives who are a net new addition to the voter rolls, to our democracy. And that to me is terribly exciting. Win, lose, or draw, they are changing our state, our country, our democracy for the better. You know, there's never an easy path. There's never a convenient time to do this. But what is so heartening and encouraging right now is that so many people, despite that, are taking this challenge on and are running for school board, county commissioner's court, justice of the peace, city council, state house, state senate, U.S. Congress, in our case, the United States Senate. And I encourage anyone who has the slightest interest in running to, to get out there and do it. Never been a better time. That's exciting. Like you said, it's quite a hurdle. You ran for city council the first time. Right. How, what propelled you to do that? Because it was not this time of extreme activism or at least interest in activism. I had the great fortune of being able to go to Columbia in New York 
graduated with an English degree, much to my parents' chagrin, who had taken out loans, had watched me take out loans, knew I was doing work-study jobs, and said, why in the world would you want to be an English major instead of a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, an accountant? Instead of going into writing or publishing, it was the height of the dot-com boom, 1995, and got hired as an HTML programmer, working in small businesses in New York that were pioneering the internet economy, and decided to move back to Texas in 1998 and start a business doing that, uh, as well as an online newspaper covering city politics in El Paso, arts and culture, our connection with Ciudad Juarez. And the more I got involved in the community, the more we covered, and the more we wrote about what was going on, the more I wanted to be part of helping to make the changes that I saw happening in El Paso. And so I ran for city council in 2005 against an entrenched incumbent, knocked on doors, uh, was able to convince enough of my fellow El Pasoans in that city council district to give me a chance and was elected to represent the 8th district on, on the city council that encompasses Segundo Barrio, Sunset Heights, Chihuahuita, the Chamizal neighborhood, and part of the, the Upper Valley and was able to do that for six years. One of the most amazing experiences of my life. What does it mean to you personally to be a public servant? It, it is incredibly rewarding when you can help someone who otherwise would suffer or not be able to achieve their full potential. Uh, a veteran who otherwise could not get into the VA, but for your ability to ensure that she's able to see that psychiatrist for her post-traumatic stress disorder. Back on the city council to help turn around a failing mass transit system and literally make sure that people could make the connection between where they lived and the school that they were attending or the job that they wanted to go to or that family member that they wanted to visit and care for. Those those small daily victories in public office, in service, are inc incredibly gratifying and rewarding. In the Congress today, being part of a bipartisan group on that House Veterans Affairs Committee, trying to improve access to mental health care for veterans, or making sure that we fulfill our commitment to those who've borne the battle, had their lives on the line, and are trying to reconnect now in civilian life back here. Traveling Texas today and learning about these amazing opportunities that we have to, to bolster public education or connect young people to higher education that otherwise is going to be out of reach for them, or going from the least insured state in the country to a state that helps this country lead the way on universal health care to make sure that every single one of us is healthy enough to do those things that we're intended to do in our lives families that we're going to raise, art that we're going to create, podcasts that we're going to host, whatever we're supposed to do to be able to live to that full potential and contribute to our shared success. That's what public service means to me, joining with others to do those things that individually on our own, we would never be able to accomplish. And to be part of that uh, has just been outside of family, the most amazing experience in my life. Yeah, that's very inspirational. I hope that people are inspired <laughs> to also jump in the way that you recommended. You have, in fact, been somebody who works across the aisle very well in Congress. And I heard about a law that you were able to pass for veterans working together with Republicans. How were you able to do that? And can you tell us a little bit about the law? This challenge in mental health care access for veterans, specifically veterans who have what is known as a bad paper or an other than honorable discharge, is costing the lives 
of those who are unable to get in to see a psychiatrist to treat that PTSD or traumatic brain injury. And so we wrote a bill called the Honor Our Commitment Act that would open up mental health care access for those who by law, because of the status of their discharge, had been denied that life-saving care and treatment. That bill, though, was going to go nowhere unless I could find a Republican colleague who could work on it with me. And it meant that I had to compromise a little bit. I had to back off my um, ideal, my my vision of perfection um, to incorporate the concerns, the, the vision of a Republican colleague who saw things a little bit differently. And out of that consensus piece of legislation that we were able to introduce together, we were able to pass it through the House Veterans Affairs Committee last December, pass it through Congress 435 to zero, and then using every relationship uh, at our disposal within the Senate, Republicans and Democrats alike, we were able to get that bill passed through that institution. Great senators like Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who who was the uh, original sponsor in, in the Senate and many others, passed out of the Senate last month and was signed by the president, opening up mental health care access to ultimately perhaps hundreds of thousands of veterans who've had that care denied them for too long. It's going to save lives. And it is um, incredibly rewarding to me that by working together on a bipartisan basis, we're going to make something happen for those who otherwise were never going to get that help. Now, if we can build on that, and apply those lessons learned to immigration or healthcare or the cost of higher education or any number of challenges that have seemed intractable. If we can put the small differences, including party behind us and just get after the work of accomplishing those goals, there will be no stopping us. And that's the attitude that I want to bring, not just to my service now in the House, not just to the campaign that we're running across Texas, but to how we serve the people of Texas in this country in the United States Senate. Nice. Very impressive. You know, one of the things that I feel I hear repeatedly in this interview is that you are a close listener of what people need and you try to meet their needs and and therefore fulfill your public service. What is the power behind being heard, you think, in a society? Yeah, Uh, such a great question. And, And I think it gets at the core of not just how you, you win an election or the appropriate way to, to campaign. It's just how we are with each other when, when we are successful. And in a country that perhaps has never been more polarized or siloed or tribal, um, to, to listen to one another and do so with, with an open heart, as somebody admonished me to do recently, to seek to understand before we ask to be understood. To, to begin with the, the premise that all of us are human, all of us who live here love this country, all of us want to do good and, and right by and for one another, and that we might just see things from a different point of view, might have different life experiences, may have a different perspective, different way to get to the shared goal. That is so powerful. And coming from El Paso, Texas, a part of our state that is hard to get to. You have to take two flights in many cases to get to El Paso. We're the only city in Texas in the mountain time zone. We are geographically and politically, and in maybe so many other ways, disconnected from the traditional centers of power. Whenever someone took the time to come out to El Paso and listen to us and say, hey, tell me about your city and what's on your mind. If they were fascinated as I am by living in the world's largest binational community, 
community or this this city tucked into the Rocky Mountains and the Chihuahuan Desert or just what our experiences are and, and who we are, man, that, that would get me. And I would, I would make a connection with that person and I'd want to work with them. In that same way, I, I seek to be in every community and listen to everyone. And I, and I make clear, I could care less if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, if you're independent, if you don't vote, if you'll never vote, if you can't by law vote. I, w- I want to be with you and understand you and bring what's exciting to you, what you're passionate about, your dreams in, into this campaign. And there is such a power in that. I, I learn so much. I leave so inspired after every visit. And it is a constant reminder of why this is the most important, the most urgent election of our lifetimes, not just because of the challenges that we face, but because of the really big, exciting things that we can do together. And so for me, that's the power of of listening and being with one another and learning and applying that to the work before us. Great. Last question. Since you started running for Senate, you've had a truly unforgiving schedule between serving in Congress and campaigning. How do you keep going? What keeps you motivated? I think it's related to the question you just asked about how we campaign and and being in every single one of the 254 counties and listening to everyone. From those visits, you cannot help but be inspired and driven and just energized. And it's it's this unique, magical property of grassroots campaigning that defies normal physics. You you leave those meetings with more energy um, than you had when, when you arrived. And everyone is energized. Everyone leaves a little bit more hopeful. Everyone is committed to, to the work ahead. And, and that's the energy. That's the power. If I am honest and if I'm humble about this and if I acknowledge that it's not about a candidate, it's certainly not about a party. Um, it may even not be about this election. It's just that there's something very special happening in Texas right now. And I am fortunate enough to be a part of this. And if I can respect that, be honest to that, do my part to contribute to the success that it seems as though we are beginning to have in Texas, then then I think all of us are going to be okay. And that, that will include this election on the 6th of, of November. That's where the energy comes from. That's where the drive comes from. It, it's the people of Texas. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for being on the show and good luck with your campaign on November 6th. I hope everybody in Texas goes out and votes. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's been a a real pleasure and grateful for the opportunity. Is it possible that something as obvious as listening to each other is the path to uniting people in this country? Beto's inspirational grassroots campaign of going to every single county in Texas to listen to the state's constituents, Democrats and Republicans alike, is at the very least an exercise in understanding the needs and worries of Texans, and at the most, a powerful way of building a representative democracy from the ground up. Raising money from over 140,000 individuals, Beto is not just fundraising, but also joining with participants and making them stakeholders in his campaign. I'm reminded of what Matt Kalman said, a previous guest of Future Hindsight, that the more engaged we become as voters, the more our elected officials will resemble and represent our populace. Perhaps today, you yourself will decide to run for office and bring in a fresh set of voices to represent and serve the public. 
On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Jennifer March. She's the executive director of the Citizens Committee for Children of New York, which is a nonprofit and nonpartisan child advocacy organization. Poor children often aren't simply poor, but there are other risk factors that impede their well-being. So they're poor, their housing stock is in poor quality, which impacts their health. They're attending schools in which fewer numbers of children are meeting basic standards in math and English. And so the risk factors we know from research, when they're multiple, the chances of long-term damaging outcomes on a child are profound. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.